It's the radioactive summer break on KRCL. I'm Laura Jones. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show, made possible by your support. Tonight I'll be checking in with two journalists, one on water, the other on fire, and I don't mean that's the state that they're in. Stick around to hear from Eric Peterson of the Utah Investigative Journalism Project, which with the help of multiple news organizations, recently published a story about how much water slips through our fingers because we don't measure it here in Utah. I'm talking about secondary water, unmetered canals, and more. I'll also share my conversation with Jamie Lowe. She's the author of Breathing Fire, Female Inmate Firefighters on the Front Lines of California's Wildfires. Weller Bookworks at Trolley Square will be hosting a virtual book visit with Lowe on Monday night. Let's start with the Songs of Summer dedication straight out of rock camp going on this week. What up, KRCL listeners? This is Shell Yeah reporting from Rock Camp SLC. We have taken over the Salt Lake Performing Arts School, a.k.a. SPA. We have about 50 campers, ages 8 to 17, who are being brave, taking up space, and being loud. They picked up instruments on Monday, formed bands, and are writing songs together. These awesome 12 bands will be performing their originals at the Camper Showcase this Saturday, August 7th. Doors at 11.30 a.m. Show starts at noon at the Commonwealth Center. Please come out and support Rock Camp SLC and these rad rockers. Rock Camp SLC would like to dedicate the song Summertime Blues by Joan Jett and the Black Hearts because there is a cure for the summertime blues and it's Rock Camp. Do you want to be heard? Yes! To serve a grand community of music listeners, local bands, and others for the benefit of youth, it's a definite responsibility. I can handle it. I work in retail. Then you should join us with the Loud and Clear Youth Radio Program. That's a lot of words. Join a group of teens all aiming towards a common goal, being heard. Sounds great to me. I'm making a LinkedIn profile as we speak. Our applications are due the 10th of September. I'm typing faster. Whether it's for fun, community, or job opportunities, Find us online at spyhop.org. That's spyhop.org. That's a memorable website you got there. Loud and clear. Be heard. This is the Radioactive Summer Break. I'm Laura Jones. Just a few days ago, the Utah Investigative Journalism Project published a story about water in Utah. Here's the headline. While facing a historic drought, Utah officials don't have a handle on how much water slips through their fingers. While the story itself is noteworthy, so is the collaborative way it came about. I get into all of that with journalist Eric Peterson. Listen up. Some of my favorite characters are in this story, but also folks we haven't heard from before, and um, or often, that is. And that's folks who run these secondary water projects or, or canals. So what was at the, at the nut of this story, if you will? You know, it's kind of an interesting story in that, um, you know, I was looking at it in the spring, you know, actually before things really heated up. The drought, um, that is. Yeah. Um, and it was kind of like an idea, like, I, I was also, I was kind of curious, like, will, will people find this interesting? Because it's kind of apropos of nothing. But I, I just wanted to, like, look at the data and, and show how much water we we really don't know, you know, like it's it's estimated or it's calculated, you know, and this was something I had heard about and was intrigued by and then found the data, the state databases where, you know, uh, me and a contributor could kind of pour through this data and like figure that 
those numbers out. But um, the numbers themselves are interesting, too, because, you know, just going through the the six most populous counties like we did, you know, we found like 85 percent is metered or measured in some kind of accurate way versus 15 percent that's estimated or calculated. But it's it's funny when you think about that 15 percent that's kind of not as reliable because that it really could be 20 percent. It could be 30 percent. We, we just don't know. And in, in the way that some of this water gets measured, you know, it really is maybe at best educated guesswork. You know, it's a little you know, back of the envelope math about how many, you know, cubic feet of water is in a canal at a certain time. And then you just kind of pencil that across for the whole year and submit that to the state and say, I hope that's right. You know, um, so there's there's a real question there. Like, do we know how much we use? And, and the answer is no, we don't. You know, we're trying all the time to get better at it. But right now, you know, there is a question mark over a good amount of water. And uh, a couple of terms that I think you've helped to make clear when we're talking about metered. I have metered at my house. You have it at your house or apartment. That's how the city or the municipality figures out how much to charge us for our water use. Um, unmetered or metered. Let's go. Let me pick that up. Uh, canals don't necessarily have meters on them because they existed before meters were invented. Right. Yeah. I mean that. That. I mean that's kind of the interesting thing about how complicated of like a, a like a, a policy issue this is that you know we talk about especially areas that were heavily agricultural or still are you know you know they set up these canal systems you know maybe even back before you know in the territorial days you know one of the individuals talked to in uh, in cash county you know it was part of a family company that been around before statehood and uh you know they they had a, a mission and a purpose back then that was you know getting water to crops and you know as the times passed you know you know they never had meters you know and 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 now they're still helping out agricultural areas but they're also you know selling water to cities for people to water their lawns and um they've had uh you know a system set up that really predates the technology that we really all should be using now. You talked to Zach Frankel of the Utah Rivers Council, who we've had on the show many times, talking about we got to measure our water right, we got to charge right for it. Um, at the same time, the state puts 85% of its water into ag, as your article notes. So there's a lot of tension there over who gets to say what gets priced. And you also looked into legislation that affects this issue and interests behind the scenes. Yeah, uh, yeah. Senator Jake Anderegg, um, he's a Utah County uh, state senator in the legislature, um, really took this on a couple of years ago. And I think the initial uh, plan was he was hoping that um, they could start moving towards a plan of getting a secondary, you know, getting meters on every secondary system. And, you know, immediately got a lot of resistance. Um, you know, it's obviously logistical challenge be super expensive um and so he was able to in 2019 get legislation passing okay if you're building a new secondary system uh you've got to get meters on those and so there that's that's certainly helping out um but you know it doesn't do anything about the really old and existing infrastructure that's out there you know that just maybe inaccurate, maybe it's leaking, you know, we, we don't know how much water is really being used. Um, 
you know, and, and in, in talking with Zach, you know, it is interesting to, to think about, you know, there's, there's all this discussion about these huge controversial, controversial water projects, the Bear River pipeline and the Lake Powell pipeline. And all of these, you know, conservatively have got, you know, you know, billions, uh, you know, uh, in, in the price tags for each of them, you know, um, whereas, you know, if, for example, the state did say, you know what, we, we're, we're going to invest in putting meters on every system, every secondary system. Um, I'm not sure how much it would be. And I think Senator Andrick's estimation was they would be hundreds of millions. But doing that, you know, you would you would end up in a situation where, like, we actually know we, we can actually plan. You know, we can actually have a, a firm grasp on how much water we're using. And, you know, with that kind of knowledge, it, it might be a, a lot easier and uh, natural for us to know when we need to, like, kind of slow the flow and change our own behaviors. You know, and from the, the conservative viewpoint, I, I think there's a lot of people that say, like, you know, well, if, if we just know we have better knowledge about it, you know, then then we can correct the problem ourselves and we can avoid, you know, some kind of government regulation or anything like that that's going to tell us when when to water and when not to but you know but then when you're just kind of treating the water use as this kind of you have no idea how much is being spent and you know it's such an inexpensive commodity you know it's like well why not you know water your lawn into september right <laughs> <laughs> So your article also goes into tension between the city and the rural parts of the state. And as our urban sprawl expands, we gobble up the farmland that was watered by these secondary sources. But we don't want to necessarily um, be part of the, the the financing for these meters that would then reduce costs overall for everybody. This is like a constantly chasing our tail kind of conversation, it sounds like, Eric. Yeah, yeah, it it, it definitely is. And I think there is... There's a lot of, uh, you know, kind of rural urban tension, as you point out there. And it's hard to hard to know exactly what the, you know, what the solution is there. Um, and, you know, and, and as Zach Frankel pointed out, you know, in the article, you know, he said, you know, it's 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 almost not, um, you, know, you, you know, you kind of fall into a trap if you accept a, a dichotomy of urban versus rural, because it's not like the farmer's are like out to stick it to the city people, right? Like we, they, we need to buy their, their crops and their beef yeah, and their pork yeah, and all and, that. And they're, and they're, you know, it's still a very tough uh, living to be a farmer. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of, you know, you're always on the margins uh, of success or failure. And, you know, a lot of old family farms, it's, it's hard to imagine them having the capital to, take all of their, you know, canals and whatnot and line them in concrete and, and uh, you know, put in the capital necessary to provide an accurate measurement, though they would certainly benefit from it, um, you know, if, if those funds were available, uh, which is which is a good thing to point out, though, uh, you know, in, in reporting the story is that one of the one of the benefits from Andrake's bill going back to that was that they did set up a system with the state to offer uh, low interest loans for, for for cities, you know, that wanted you know put meters on their secondary systems. I think they've even got like two million in grants available every year. Um, so some cities are starting to take advantage of that, and uh, you know, hopefully that's something that that more people do as well. 
Well, Eric, the Utah Investigative Journalism Project is where this story started with your nonprofit, full disclosure. I support the project. And this story wouldn't have happened without several sources coming together. And your interest first in the data. Tell us how this came together as as a story. Well, you know, it's like I kind of mentioned before, like I heard about, you know, um, I actually think it was in a conversation I had with, uh, you know, I with, with the nonprofit, like one of the things I've been trying to do a lot more of is kind of multi-outlet collaborations. And, and this is really a good example of that because we ended up having this story in, in uh, five different outlets in the Spectrum, uh, the Daily Herald, the Standard Examiner, Salt Lake City Weekly, and the Herald Journal. Um, and I actually was talking with the uh, editor at the, I think the Spectrum News, uh, talking just about water use issues in general. And he, I think he was the one who pointed out, you know, how a lot of the secondary systems are, are you know, are just, uh, it's it's total guesswork, you know, and that was something that he'd always been interested in. And that kind of got me along the path of like, like going, okay, well, where is the data? You know, how can I look at it? Is it an interesting question just to ask how much do we know is metered and how much is not? Um, and then, you know, I had to have a lot of conversations with the state, the Division of Water Resources, figure out how to like really use their database. Um, they have a lot of info online. It's just uh, not, it's unfortunately not one of those databases where I can just click, you know, and get sort. exactly how I want. <laughs> I, we had to go through each water source and then get the, the numbers for, you know, each individual, you know, like stream, you know, well, you know, this and that and, and put it all together. So, um, so it was really, yeah. I mean, it was really a question of just like asking, like, what do we know and what don't we know, you know? Yeah. It costs a lot to make the desert bloom like a rose. Yeah. And uh, you also got some support out of the University of Colorado Boulder. What was that about? Oh, yeah. There's the uh, um, the water desk uh, is that's uh, um, uh, out, out of the University of Colorado Boulder. Uh, uh, they're kind of like um, a grant organization that kind of helps support reporting about you know uh, especially water use and conservation type issues um we kind of pitched them on uh, some stories last year um actually helped support uh, uh this reporting and also uh reporting we did uh earlier uh well last month about the ute tribe in the lake powell pipeline and I do want to give props to your co-reporter on this story. Yeah, Mac, Mac, uh, Macklin Jones. Uh, uh, she's a contributor. It's helped me out with uh, several other projects and helped out a lot with the research on this one. So this is old school shoe leather journalism, which costs a lot. We've seen the Tribune switch to a nonprofit model and looking for more of these collaborations as well. In fact, they carry a lot of the work that you do because that is the mission of the Utah Investigative Journalism Project, to pull this data together, uh, perhaps write the stories, but more importantly, put them out there for others to carry and spread the word. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's... Uh... You know, one thing I, I, I picked up on, um, you know, in my early career as a journalist was that, you know, investigative journalism, in my opinion, it's like the most important kind of journalism that can be done. But it's also, you know, it's the most expensive. It's the most, you know, uh, time intensive. 
and so when you have uh, media organizations that are struggling with resources and you know just trying to keep up with the daily uh, uh, all all the daily events that are happening, uh, it's hard to take time, you know, and and dig into something. Um, so that was that was the idea with the nonprofit was you know like let's let's specialize let's let's collaborate uh, where we can let's you know take the time to like uh, take a, a more in depth look at certain topics and and let's provide that uh, what we find to our media partners try and help everyone out. Where can people catch up with your work online and look into supporting the project? Uh, UtahInvestigative.org and. Uh, you can find the, our, our donate buttons right there on the website, or you can go to utahinvestigative.org slash donate. Journalist Eric Peterson, he's also executive director of the nonprofit Utah Investigative Journalism Project. Check tonight's show notes for a link where you'll find the water story as well as other great investigative pieces. I'm Laura Jones. This is the Radioactive Summer Break, and still to come... Another journalist, Jamie Lowe, on her new book about female inmate firefighters. Looking to make a difference? Hey, what about donating blood this summer? The Red Cross is facing a severe blood shortage. So give now, help avoid delays in life-saving medical care for patients, and it just might be you or somebody you love. So visit redcrossblood.org. Make an appointment today. My next guest just published her investigation into female inmate firefighters in California's correctional camps. Stay tuned for details about her virtual visit coming up Monday evening with Weller Bookworks. Let's get into it. Hi, I'm Jamie Lowe. My book is Breathing Fire, Female Inmate Firefighters on the Frontline of California's Wildfires. You know, I wanted to start with the thank you, actually, because at the back of the book, as I was flipping through, it says, thank you to the experts on social justice, mass incarceration, the court system, firefighting, the history of California, and climate science who advised me along the way and provided necessary context. This book covers a lot of ground, as well as being a thoroughly engaging read. So where does this story start, or should I say, who does it start with? For me, this story really started with Shauna Lynn Jones. Um, I was home. I was reading the LA Times. I, I'm ba- I should say I'm based in Brooklyn, but I'm from California. I spend a lot of time there. And I was in Los Angeles. I was just paging through the paper and came across this article that was about 500 words. And it was about this woman, Shauna Lynn Jones, who was an incarcerated firefighter who had died fighting the Mulholland Fire. And I was immediately struck by both the fact that an incarcerated firefighter program existed and by the fact that this woman was basically described in two sentences and maybe less. And it was all sort of surrounding her crime and not so much about who she was or what her life was like before she was incarcerated, what her life was like as a firefighter. Um, it just sort of said her name and and what she was there for. And I really wanted to know more about her. That was 2016. You start digging into it and you find, as I, as I said with your thank you, that there are all these connections to social justice, to California history and more. In fact, there's a, a very odd tidbit in the book about, is it an 1850 law that enabled enslavement as a punishment. 
for basically being A, foreign, and B, unemployed? Yeah, I mean, I found while I was researching this, and there are people who, scholars actually, who are much better versed on this, like Kelly Little Hernandez, um, who can talk about vagrancy laws and how the state was essentially established by, you know, white landowning men who made laws that made it okay to uh, arrest um, men who were wandering around at night and then auction them off to often, you know, make the roads to plow fields for agriculture. Um, people who really made the state what it is were people who were arrested and put on inmate crews. And you draw the line then from there to these inmate firefighting crews. And women only joined those ranks as inmate firefighting crews relatively recently. Right. So the program was originally established in 1946, and women joined in 1983. And I believe it was because there was sort of discriminatory practices in that you could have days shaved off if you put in time as a firefighter. And women didn't have the opportunity to do that. And so they opened these three camps, Rainbow, Puerto La Cruz, and Malibu, that were all women. Now, I think a lot of folks are familiar with the fact that if you do have a job while you're incarcerated, it pays pennies an hour. Um, but firefighting got you a little bit more, I guess? Yeah, it is actually one of the highest paid positions within CDCR, which is the Corrections Department in California. That's not to say that they're paid a lot or nearly enough. When I started reporting, they were paid two fifty six a day in camp and about a dollar an hour when they were out on fire lines. And compared to civilian crews, that's nothing. But it was one of the, it was and remains, I believe, one of the highest paid within prison industries in California. Well, we're all feeling the effects of wildfires in California and elsewhere across the country this summer. So this story seems or this book you've published seems so well timed, but you've been working on it for years. What is the story that you want folks or what are the some of the lessons that you want folks to glean from this or or learn from this? That's a really good question. I think that first and foremost, I want the stories of these women to be the most prominent part of the book, because I think that the personal experience of each of these women, it ranges on the spectrum, but it's also the most sort of emotionally uh, relatable in some ways, just that there are people doing this. There are people who from incarcerated crews to civilian crews that are out on the line risking their lives and their emotional state to try and, you know, fight climate crisis. And this is sort of the new battleground. Um, there are a lot of sort of subsets of takeaways that I would love for people to understand. One of them being that the conditions in prisons and county jails are absolute, absolutely a spiritual crisis. Um, people should not be treated the way that they are within those circumstances. And that's what leads women and men to choose to risk their lives to fight fire. At least they're out in nature and their families, I understand, can visit them. 
Right. And the, and that's the, you know, that's the irony is that it's the, the corrections department uses the word volunteer all the time, but it's not so much volunteer if you're choosing to not be in a horrible situation and place where you're exposed to violence and predatory behavior. And there is, you know, there are better opportunities when you're in camp, you're surrounded by trees and hills, there aren't fences, you can sometimes rent a cabin that your family can visit overnight. You know, one woman that I spoke with really recently uh, described being in state prison and having her child visiting and she pressed her hand against the plexiglass window and her kid did the same. And that was the closest she came to contact. But when she was in camp, she could hug her child. Wow. That alone is, is getting to me. So you writing this book for the last number of years, um, how do you come out this other side and what is your hope that this book does in our country? Well, I hope that it humanizes incarceration, which I think is difficult because we've sort of broken it down to data. And I think that there's even a bipartisan understanding that the way that our our criminal justice system, and I would say it's not really, justice doesn't really belong in that phrase, um, that it doesn't work right now, that it that prisons don't work. They're a failure. And I think that I would love for that to be one takeaway. Another takeaway would be that this program is incredibly complicated and nuanced. All of the women that I spoke with and some men described true life transformation and a lot of change. And I think that there could be some very simple fixes to it to make it something that would be a really good alternative to prison. And I think corrections departments could learn from it. But I think they actually, in the state that it exists now, correctional officers cannot be present while people are trying to be firefighters. So I feel that, I guess one of the conclusions I came to is that it's incredibly physically and mentally taxing to be a firefighter. But then to add all of what comes with being incarcerated and all of the trauma that is the reality of being in prison on top of being a firefighter, it's just, it doesn't work. It's too much to be treated like a prisoner and then have the expectation of being a successful firefighter and within a successful firefighting crew. It's not something that's possible. And I think that if you remove CDCR and the presence of correctional officers from these circumstances, you have a much better chance of actually bringing humanity into the program. It's interesting because for all of its faults and failings within this this specific program is the idea, that transformative experience that you're talking about, that true rehabilitation. Right. And I think there's a spectrum of whether or not that's actually possible. I think for some people, it really is within this program. And for some people, it really isn't. And I think one of the, you know, underlying factors is that 
rehabilitation isn't something that the corrections department is actually focused on. It's if the women who are doing it really, really assert themselves and want it, that's when it happens. But they're not getting the kind of support and guidance and the kind of support and guidance they need upon reentry when they're released to actually, you know, affect like effectively use that rehabilitation within their lives a lot of the time. Well, Jamie, thank you so much for giving it just a taste of your book, Breathing Fire. And I think you've done justice in a small way for Shauna Lynn Jones and her story since 2016. And you read just that 500-word story about her. I think you have made her real on the page for us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Jamie Lowe, author of Breathing Fire, Female Inmate Firefighters on the Front Lines of California's Wildfires. Weller Bookworks at Trolley Square will be hosting a virtual book chat with Jamie, as well as local activist and ACLU of Utah coordinator Sydney McKimo Monday night at 7. So check tonight's show notes for a link to reserve your live stream seat and a copy of the book. I'm Laura Jones, and this has been the Radioactive Summer Break.